Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Anyone who has hosted a party knows the feeling. The feeling that you do not want to run out. Run out of whatever you would need. Drinks, chips, snacks. That's why we almost always universally buy what we know is going to be way too much when we're hosting a party. Because no one wants to be the host that runs out. No one wants to be the host that doesn't have enough. But even if you did, outside of maybe a slight personal embarrassment, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And so by today's standards and societal customs, we may find ourselves asking when we read the gospel text, John chapter 2, what's the big deal? Outside of Jesus doing a favor for a family friend, is it all that important that he saves someone from a mere party foul? Well, unlike today, it was no mere party foul to run out of wine in first century Galilee. Because one of the most important concepts in culture and society is what's known as reciprocal hospitality. And in the first century, that was at its height. The way it would work would be you get invited to someone's wedding. And as part of the groom and his family's responsibilities, my father-in-law will love this, they had to not only pay a price for the bride's hand in marriage, but also pay for all the food and drink for you to consume. And it was not just a one day or even a weekend thing But depending on who was married, the celebration and the feast might even last weeks. It was a social construct that no one would dare fail to uphold because when it came time for you and your son to be married, you were required to respond with the same type of hospitality that you had already received. We may not want to run out of drinks or snacks or chips when we host a party. But I can guarantee you that none of you have ever worried about the long-term social stigmas that would apply if at your summer barbecue you ran out of hot dogs and you forced people to have to go with a few hamburgers against their will. And in two weeks, while we're watching the Super Bowl, if you're hosting a Super Bowl party, I'm sure none of you are worried about a lawsuit that could be coming your way Monday morning should such a disaster like the queso dip running short in the third quarter occur. And at Christmas, I'm sure none of you thought about the long-term guilt and shame that not only you would bear, but your children and even your grandchildren if you did not bring enough cookies. As silly or as mundane as those examples might be, that was the exact level of repercussion. That was the severity of the consequence that faced the couple and their families in Cana. That's what John's hearers in the first century would have been thinking when they heard that the wine had run out. They would have heard that that's an absolute disaster. Because not only would the wedding feast be labeled a disgrace, but the entire marriage and any children that marriage produced would also bear that shame 
especially when it came time for them to be married. And if you had been one of those families that had first shown the hospitality to this couple or one of their families at your own wedding, you could actually bring forth a lawsuit seeking financial damages. And even the stewards, the ones who were working the event, whose fault it was not, they would carry the guilt and shame of this disaster with them. And they'd be unable to work an event or a wedding in that area for the foreseeable future. When we read that the wine had run out, and in the Greek, it's much more literally that the wine had failed or that the wine was lacking, we read that not only did the wine fail or did the wine run short, but that the couple and their families had also failed, that they had not met the standards that were set for them. The disaster is so evident that Mary doesn't even need to make her request in the form of a question. She just tells Jesus they have no more wine. Imagine the panic that couple would face. Yet, we're still asking, so what does that have to do with you? Because that is the real question, isn't it? Well, imagine being the groom for just a moment. This day that was supposed to be a day of celebration has now turned into something that might follow you the rest of your life. Imagine his panic and then his confusion. Confusion because he sees his head steward and he doesn't look concerned at all. In fact, he's jovial and tells him that he had saved the best wine for last. No, he hadn't. He knew that. Yet all the credit is given to him. The thing that should be made to hang around his neck for quite a while, all of a sudden it's gone and in its place is a full complement of accolades and honors that he has no business deserving. And that new couple no longer needs to worry about their future shame or even their children's reputation. The disaster that they created for themselves, it's gone. See, the wedding at Cana is much less about the actual event. After all, we don't even know the name of the couple. Rather, it's more about the actual situation, a situation where we find a people who are lacking, a situation where we find people who had not met the standards that had been set for them, a people who had failed, where we see people who had no hope of rectifying the situation on their own. And in comes Jesus. And now maybe that miracle at the wedding might start to hit home just a little bit. Because we do not need Jesus to replenish our literal wine supply. I'm fairly confident we all have an adequate amount of that. But we do know that we too, like that couple, are lacking. That we have failed to meet the standard that had been set for us. And it's not a long-term social stigma that we fear. No, our sin produces a far 
greater burden. The stigma of our sin is our very death. We can be tempted to treat this miracle like it's not that big of a deal, and we can also be tempted to treat our own sin like it's not that big of a deal. After all, everyone's doing it. Tempted to discount the enormous debt that our sin has incurred for us of our own doing on our own behalf. To discount the true severity of our situation. The seriousness of the consequence for our failure, for our lacking. Because rightfully of our own accord, we have no right to be children of God. By our own sinful nature, we should be the children of his wrath. Because we are a people of failure. And we have been found to be absolutely wanting. The consequences of our sin are no laughing matter for ourselves. Not before God. God who made the heavens and the earth. The God whom we should be ashamed to face. God whom still calls you his child. Not because of what you've done, but because of what his son did. Like that couple in Cana, we are a people of failure. We are a people who of our own doing have no hope of rectifying our situation, the consequence for our sin. And yet, in walks Jesus. Not at his mother's request, but out of his great love for you. At the wedding of Cana, we read that Christ's hour had not yet come. And we read that this was the first of his miraculous signs, a manifestation of his glory. But it was not the full manifestation of his glory, nor was it the best of his miraculous signs. No, that he reserved for you. That he reserved for when his great hour would come. And as the saying goes, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Because that great hour would come and his full manifestation of his glory would be revealed on the cross. And then on the third day in his resurrection from the dead, true God made flesh, crucified and died for you, and then raised on the third day as a remedy for our sin, as a hope for those of us who should be eternally hopeless. We sit here today not unlike that groom, looking back at his head steward dumbfoundedly when he had told him that he had saved the best wine for last. Because by Christ's power, you are a child of God. And through Christ and on his account, you are declared righteous. But you know more than anyone, that's not because you've earned it. Yet all the credit, all the benefit of Christ's work is given to you. Your standing before God is changed. And the thing that we should 
that should be held over our heads, it's gone. Because like those who were in Cana, we too have a marriage feast to look forward to. But it's not the one that Jesus is required to replenish the wine at. No, it's the one that's only made possible through the shedding of his blood. The marriage feast of the Lamb, whose kingdom will have no end. The marriage feast we read of in Revelation chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is an invite that is extended to all people who have faith in his promise. It's an invite to an eternal celebration, an invitation to peace. But most importantly, because of Christ, it's an invitation that God gives to you, a beloved child of God. Amen. Now may the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We rise to confess.